My name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody that might be visiting with us for the first time today. Also, welcome to anybody who might be listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday mornings. Well, in case you haven't noticed, it's the Christmas season. Uh, and depending on who you are, that's good news for you. And depending on who you are, that, that may not be so great news. But we have about 18 days, if I did the math right, until Christmas uh, gets here. And so I, uh, a question that I just want to throw out today is, what thoughts come to mind when you think of Christmas? Now, I know you're in church, and so you're sort of tempted to give the Sunday school answer, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season, and all those sorts of things that, you, you know, you should say as it relates to Christmas. But what is the real honest unedited answer to that question. When you think about Christmas, when you start to uh, get in the middle of the Christmas season and all the things that come along with that, what are some of the things that come to mind? What are some of the things that invade your thoughts as we start to talk about Christmas? And some of you will say family. And you'll say it like that, with that softness, that sweetness. You, I mean, you look real close, there might even be a little twinkle in your eye when you say family, right? And while others will say family, right? They will, you know, grimace a little bit because, you know, this isn't a really good time for your family. You have memories around this holiday. You would say family. You would say it either happily or say it, uh, you know, with kind of a grumpy attitude. Some of you will say food. You really look forward to cooking and spread, and you normally sort of watch your eating, but, you know, through this span of about 60 days around the holiday season, you give yourself, you know, 60 cheat days because, after all, we're in the holidays. You think about the food fondly, or you think about the food in the sense that, oh, my mother-in-law is coming this time, and last time she said the turkey was dry. You don't really you know, get into that particular aspect. Some of you say shopping and gifts. If you talk to the little ones, they say toys, 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 and more toys. If you talk to some of the adults, they say toys, toys, and more toys. Maybe because you don't need another toy in your house, or maybe because things are a little tight this year. Uh, Maybe you're laid off. Maybe they reduced your hours. And so the prospect of shopping and having to give gifts and uh, possibly going into debt doesn't really excite you. Maybe some of you are thinking about travel and all the things that come along with that. If you're a pastor like me, you think fondly about this holiday in some aspects, but many, many pastors, they won't tell you this. I will, though, uh, that we preach some of the same passages around Christmas time every year, and it's a real struggle to come up with something fresh, something new. It's a real struggle. And many of us, I was just telling some of my guys that I confide in that I was just not really, I wasn't looking forward to Christmas season and having to, you know, get creative and to try to pull something else out of this really, really familiar story. Um, what do you think about when you think about Christmas? If you're like me, sometimes you start thinking about all the wrong things. And all the things I listed, especially if there's some positive aspect of them, You know, these aren't bad things. They aren't bad things. They're great things. They're fantastic opportunities to join, like, this celebration of what Christmas is all about. But when those things start to become the main thing, when those things start to become the main thing, then I think things tend to get a little complicated. Things tend to get a little complicated. And if you know me, you know that I don't mind hard things. I don't mind hard work. I don't mind engaging something that's hard, but I can't stand something that's complicated, especially if it doesn't have to be. 
And so that's why I really get a little frustrated when I look out over the landscape of Christianity, particularly over the landscape of our church, and I see us making something that God designed to be simple, something he designed to be powerful, something he designed to be life-giving, and when we make it complicated and it adds stress and it adds pressure and it adds anxiety, and all of a sudden we've gotten so far away from what God originally intended for this season to be all about. And for that reason, I want to begin a brand new Christmas series uh, that I'm simply calling the Uncomplicated Christmas. The Uncomplicated Christmas. And this is a version of Christmas that is void of all of the drama. It's a version of Christmas that's void of some of the anxiety and some of the fear and some of all the hustle and bustle because, frankly, God never intended this celebration to include all of that. One of my goals in life, and it served me well, is to keep the main thing the main thing. I found as I work hard to keep the main thing the main thing, all of the other peripheral things have a way of falling into place. Isn't that right for some of you who've lived that out? And so what we're going to try to do in this series over the next few weeks is to keep the main thing the main thing. And as it relates to this holiday, the main thing here is Jesus. The main thing is that a broken, fallen world, when we needed it most, God gave us a Savior. To deal with our sins, to deal with our brokenness, to deal with our selfishness and everything that's wrong with us, God gave the gift of his Son to set wrong things right again. And as that child, as that baby, as that Savior came to earth, it set into motion some things that we really, really need. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to be talking about the secret ingredients to having an uncomplicated Christmas and really an uncomplicated life if we carry this beyond December 25th. The goal is to zero in on Christ and what he brings, and everything else is to fall in place. And the first thing that I want to deal with as we unpack this uncomplicated Christmas is this whole idea of hope. Uh, As I study this Christmas story, as I look at it backwards and forwards, as I dissect it, you cannot extract hope from this Christmas story. Hope is simply defined as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a certain, you know, certain of something because it's been told to you, it's been promised to you, and you're looking forward to it with eager expectation. The great Sigmund Freud, a great psychoanalyst, says that we need two things in life in order to live rich, satisfying lives, and that is love and work, or work can be translated to hope. We need a reason to get out of bed in the morning. We need something to look forward to, something to expect, expect that propels us forward, that keeps us moving forward, that keeps us from receding and dying, if not physically, but certainly emotionally and spiritually. We need hope. It's one of the foundational things of life, and this whole idea of hope is wrapped up in this Christmas story. And so if we want to live an uncomplicated life, if we want to have an uncomplicated Christmas season and an uncomplicated life, I think we should start with hope. We should start with hope, and that's simply what I'm calling this message today. Start with hope. We're going to look at an Old Testament passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 9. We'll start at verse 1. And this is one of the many prophecies in the Old Testament that basically told of the Savior's coming. We'll look at this passage today, and we'll unpack the significance and the origins of hope and how, if we put that to work in our life, 
we can live an uncomplicated life and most certainly have an uncomplicated Christmas. Before I begin, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your truth. I thank you so much, Lord, that we are able to gather here today with all that's going on in the world and worship your name. Lord, we know that in a room this size, there are people that have come here from all walks of life. And people here in this room today dealing with all manners of things that can't be readily discerned by looking at their faces, Lord. But you know exactly where we are and you know exactly what we need. And so, Lord, I pray that your truth would land on our hearts this morning, Lord, and that your hope would be the gift that we open and delight in this morning. God, I pray that you would put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Uh, move the preacher out of the way this morning, Lord, so that your truth and your light may shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 9, we'll start at verse 1. And let me just set this up for you. These words have been penned and spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And a prophet is simply somebody who speaks to God's people on, on his behalf. It's a messenger from God. And sometimes these prophets had bad messages, and sometimes they had good messages. And when I say bad messages, I don't mean inaccurate, false messages, but I mean sometimes they said, hey, you're in trouble. God's going to get you. Hey, your number is coming up. Hey, get ready because God's about to lay it on you. And oftentimes he had really, really good news, these prophets. Let's also understand that prophet Isaiah is writing and speaking particularly during the reign of King Ahaz, uh, one of of Israel's kings. You also have to understand that Israel had good kings and they had bad kings, kings that honored the Lord and things went well for them and well for the people. And Israel also had bad kings. And you can probably guess what happens when Israel had bad things. Things sort of go bad for the people. Well, King Ahaz was one of the bad guys. Didn't follow the Lord's way, didn't listen to God, sought to do things his own way, and the people paid for it. And because Ahaz was a bad king, this is a dark period in the nation of Israel's history. And so in the previous chapters, the, 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 the prophet Isaiah has given them bad news about how God's judgment is going to come over them and how they're going to be overtaken by other armies and led into captivity. He just sort of laid some really bad news on them. And we pick this up in Isaiah chapter 9. We'll start at verse 1. Nevertheless, that time of darkness, which he unpacked in the last few chapters, uh, and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burdens from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniform bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. Verse 6, for a child is born to us. And a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with the fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. 
have to understand something. This is a really important passage. This also happens to be one of the more famous passages of Old Testament scripture and Old Testament prophecy, especially around Christmas time, because Handel, the great composer, Handel's Messiah, basically takes verse uh, 6 and 7 and makes a fantastic Christmas song about this. And so this is one of the more famous passages, but it's very, 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 very important. And so why is this so important? Well, it's important because God is calling his shots. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying God is calling his shots in the sense that God's in, in, in control and he's calling, you know, calling the shots. But he's calling his shots. He's predicting what will happen in the future. Because it's one thing for something awesome to happen. It's, it's one thing for something spectacular, something miraculous to happen, something wonderful to happen. It's, something, it's another thing altogether for something awesome to, have to happen after it's been sort of predicted. It's kind of like if you're playing basketball and somebody throws up sort of wild shot from half court behind their back and it goes in, you might give them a high five, but you go, hey, you lucky dog, I do, do it again. But it's another thing altogether for somebody to say, hey, listen, man, I'm going to do a black flip. I'm going to grab my baby. I'm going to run to the half court line. I'm going to do a body roll. I'm going to kiss my wife. I'm going to throw the shot behind me, nothing but net. And then it happens, Right? That's another thing altogether. Why? Because it was wild, it was spectacular, it was awesome, but they called it. They predicted it. And so this is important because this is one of the many passages in Scripture, particularly the Old Testament Scripture, that point us forward to Christ's coming. Point us forward to the coming of the Messiah and what the Messiah would do and what he would bring with him in all of his glory. Prophecy was given some 700 years before Christ came to earth. And some of you might ask, well, what does this matter to us? What does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with hope? Well, it's important because hope is functional. Hope is functional. It's not just something that God had some extra parts left in heaven after he created everything. So let me put these things together, and I guess we'll give them hope. No, hope is functional. It serves a purpose. And if hope is going to do you any good during this Christmas season, if hope is going to do you any good in your life, you're going to have to understand what it's all about. You're going to have to understand where it comes from. You're going to understand what God's design for this hope, this important peace is for your life. And so that's why we're talking about this today. And so I want to unpack, based on this passage and passages like it, I want to unpack Three specific truths, three important truths about hope. And hopefully this can help decomplicate our Christmas and especially decomplicate our lives. And the first thing that we see is that hope starts with a promise. Hope starts with a promise. I love to study the origins of things, words, things like that. Where does it come from? Who thought of that? Where did it come from? What's its purpose? Hope starts, it, it begins, it originates with a promise, and not just a promise, but a promise from a credible source. In this case, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and gives him a specific promise about what Messiah would be, what he would do, what he would bring, and even specifically where he would come from. Verse 1 says, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Things are going to change. He continues, the land of Zebulun 
and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Now, that's pretty self-explanatory, so let me just move on to something else. It's not self-explanatory. What on earth is Zebulun? Where is Naphtali? What does that have to do with anything? Well, first, this is a promise that the promised Savior will come from an unlikely place. Zebulun is a region in northern Israel that contains a city named Nazareth. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that Nazareth was the hometown of Jesus. That other place, Naphtali, also in the northern part of Israel, contains a city called Capernaum. And Capernaum, if you're familiar with the Gospels, is the sort of the ministry headquarters of Jesus, where he operated out of. What you, know, what you need to know about Nazareth and Capernaum was they weren't particularly impressive places. Uh, they were kind of despised. Nothing good would be perceived to come out of those places. In fact, uh, in the Gospels, somebody was sort of, Jesus was sort of coming to town and people saying, this is the Messiah. And somebody said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good and important and significant come from that place? And we have places uh, like that around here. I mean, somebody told you um, that somebody came from some great city. You go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But if somebody said, hey, this great person or this great thing emanated out of Gary, Indiana, some of you would go, hmm, right? Sometimes you hear somebody's story or somebody has this great sort of Cinderella story and they tell you where they're from. You go, that is remarkable. Uh, that is remarkable that something so great came from someplace so humble. Something so great came from someplace so meaningless. And what is, what is God doing? As he's, does he need to give the specific details of where Jesus will come from? Does he need to do that? He doesn't, but he's calling his shots. He, he's predicting. He's laying this thing out for us. 700 years before this thing is going to come to pass. And so Jesus has, the Lord is getting really, really specific with his promises. And he continues to tell us in this passage what will come from Nazareth, what will emanate from Capernaum. Verse 6, For the child is born to us, and a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and the government, and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. And so this is a powerful promise to a desperate people. These people are in need of hope. They're in need of something. They're in need of answers. And so the Lord puts it plainly in this prophecy, a child will be born. Now, this is an actual per person. This isn't some sort of ghost that will float around. This is an actual person that you can see, that you can touch. A child will be born. He says that the government will rest upon his shoulders. And so this is important to us today because when I looked at the government last, it wasn't resting on the shoulders of the Lord. And so this is one that has yet to come to pass, but it's a promise nonetheless. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Hey, you remember that time in the Gospels where Jesus called his disciples and asked their advice? Hey, what should I do? Where should I go? What should the Son of Man? He, you don't remember because it never happened. And so this wonderful counselor is, is the God that doesn't need input. 
The God who can see around corners. The God that knows the beginning from the end. He doesn't need our input. He's God all by himself, as my mom used to say. A wonderful counselor, a mighty God, omnipresent, omnipotent. He's in charge. He's capable. The everlasting Father, timeless one, uncreated one. He's secure. He'll be here tomorrow. You can count on him. And the Prince of Peace. Has there ever been a time where we need the Prince of Peace? Has there ever been a time where the world, where the church, needs the inbreaking peace of God? All these things, when you put them together, this is a sweet promise. It's especially uh, sweet if you're going through some stuff. These promises are especially meaningful if you're in a bad way, if you're in need. And trust me, the people of Israel were. The prophet had just spent two chapters detailing what would happen under the rulership of this king, what would go on and on and on. And so we realize that hope comes from a promise, but hope is also, the second thing, the hope is also for the poor. Hope is also for the poor. I told you that King Ahaz was a bad dude. A few weeks ago, we talked about King David, who was a man after God's own heart. And as we looked at King David's story, we saw the blessings that flowed from his kingship. The people were blessed. They triumphed. They were victorious in battle because David, though he had issues, he feared the Lord. King Ahaz is a different story. And as a result, his people are feeling, feeling at odds with God because their king is at odds with God. And so these guys are in a bad spot. Hope is for the poor. You said, preacher, why are we talking about poverty now? How do we switch gears? Did you mix up your pages here? No. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then this powerful passage, this powerful verse, uh, basically Jesus is telling us who the kingdom of God is for. Who the bounty and richness of the kingdom of God and all it has to offer, who qualifies for this? Who qualifies for the hope of heaven? Jesus says the poor. Now, you need to understand that poor here does not mean physically, materially poor. It doesn't mean sort of poverty of your your health. It, It basically means poverty of your soul. Your soul is bankrupt. Your soul is empty. You're spiritually destitute. You're spiritually uh, bankrupt. And not only you are you poor, but you know it. Verse 3 says, blessed are those who are poor and realize their need for him. Blessed are those who are busted and they know it. Blessed are those who can't help themselves and they know it. And so we see these people here. They're in a bad way. And they know it. And so this promise isn't just some run-of-the-mill promise, but it's a promise that means something because there is a need. There is a hole. There is a gap. And to be truly poor in spirit means that you know it. And the only difference between some of us is that some of us have figured out that we're busted while others of us have not yet. 
And some of us experience life and hope in the kingdom of God. We hold on to the promises that God gives us. We have hope in the promise because we know that we're empty. We know we can't make this thing happen on our own. We know that we're missing something. We know that we're empty, and the promises of God are what we wait on to fill us up. Listen, are you poor today? (laughs) Are you empty? I think the promises of God mean very little if you feel like you don't need anything. The promises of God mean very little if you feel like you don't need anything. And some of you are hopeless today because you feel like you're okay. In other words, you get got other things working for you. you got this thing that's taken the place in your heart where your heart's supposed to be empty vessel for the Lord to fill it up with his promises, with his goodness, with all of his kingdom stuff. Some of us, we've got that thing, right? For many of us, it's one prevailing thing, and some of us, it's stuff. Whatever your definition of stuff is, whatever you like, whatever you go after, whatever you lean towards, some of you, it's stuff. And for some of you, it's money. Your thing is money. And some of you, it's your intelligence. And some of it's your friends, your connectedness. And some of you, it's your pseudo sense of sort of it, the pseudo sense of invincibility that comes with youth and that comes with success. And maybe you're doing well in your life and you just got this thing. You just don't, you're not poor enough. You're not empty enough. There's no room for this all-consuming hope and promise that comes from all one source. You've got this sense of invincibility. And listen, your thing doesn't always have to be a good thing. Some of you, your thing is misery. And this warped sense of, you know, therapy that you get from, you know, being on the bottom all the time. And being pessimistic and being the victim. And some of your thing is misery. Some of the thing is your story and how you've clung to something. And you won't allow God to rescue you because you've got this, this thing. It's hard to feed somebody who's not hungry. It's hard to give water to somebody who's not thirsty. It's hard to give hope to somebody who, who, who's got it covered already. Or who is feasting on something other than what God has to offer. It's hard to do that. Why? Because hope is for the poor. Hope is for the poor. And whenever God dispenses a promise, whenever he dispenses a promise and connected to that promise is hope, I like to watch who grabs hold of it. Because the people who grab hold of it are usually the people that experience, and not just experience, but they're in touch with that uh, destitute place in their soul. The poverty of spirit that is necessary in order for God to do the real work in your heart. And again, this isn't about how much money you have. This isn't about where you live. This isn't about your resource. Listen, this gospel has to be for more than people who need their light bill paid. And so some of us, we've got a hold of a gospel that only is going to pay our bills and buy us a nice purse and get us in a car and get us a house. Well, if that's the case, if that's all to this gospel, then what about the up-and-outers? What about the people who've got stuff? They're not worried about their next paycheck. No, this is for everybody. It's for everybody because we're all busted. The trick, my job, is to get you to realize that you're poor, to get you to realize that you're destitute, to get you to realize that you're empty because it's then and only then can true hope come. Because it's then and only then that you can realize that what God has to offer you is good news because it's better than what you got. Hope is for the poor. Are you poor? Are you empty? People of Israel were. Hope starts with a promise. 
Hope is for the poor. And thirdly and finally, hope is an anchor. When you live an uncomplicated Christmas, you want to live an uncomplicated life, you've got to internalize these truths. Hope is an anchor. And you may, you know, just kind of have a casual knowledge of what an anchor is, and that's all you really need. An anchor is part of a boat that goes down, 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 and hooks onto something that's not going to move. Hooks down to something that's going to be stable, even while everything else above is moving and shifting. The winds are blowing. The waves and the current would seek to have its way with that boat were it not for the anchor that's tethered to something that won't move. There's a lot of moving parts to Israel's story. And they're just at the beginning of it. There's 700 more years of this to go. 700 more years. And if we look at the passage here, it just kind of details what's going to be happening. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, but they're in darkness. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, more darkness, he will break the yoke of their slavery. They'll be captive. They're not going to be in a bad way just for a minute. We're talking about, you know, centuries. Centuries. And frankly, we're still in a bad way as God's people. And so if we don't have something to hold on to when all the moving parts of life want to tear us apart, and move us farther and farther away than what we're supposed to do. If hope does not anchor your soul, you will not make it. Because in the absence of hope, we are ruled by the circumstances of life. In the absence of hope, we are ruled by the circumstances of life. When hope doesn't serve, particularly the hope of heaven, the hope that comes from a promise that comes from a credible source, in the absence of that anchor for our souls that keeps us put, when life goes crazy, you are at the mercy of your circumstances. You're at the mercy of what's happening that day, that minute, and that hour. And that's why some of you feel so crazy, because you're at the mercy of the way the wind blows. You're at the mercy of the words that people speak to you. You're at the mercy of what's happening on the news. And to be ruled by the circumstances, I guess that's not a bad deal if the circumstances are pleasant. If the circumstances are are God-breathed and God-inspired, if they're pleasant. But, you know, you don't have to read too many newspapers or look at too many newsreels or check too many news feeds to figure out that that's not what's happening in our world today. It's not what happens in our world. We look at the circumstances. Just let's look at them, shall we? War. Terrorism, both foreign and domestic. Somebody just decides that today is the day that I'm going to go and I'm going to kill 130 people. Today's the day where I'm just going to get a bunch of bullets, get a bunch of bombs, and just go, I'm just going to blow some stuff up just because, just because I can Today's the day where I'm just going to, you know, go into a school and just shoot up some kids. It, just because. Today's the day I'm just going to go and shoot up a movie theater just, and then take my own lot. Terrorism all over the world. Don't just think because it isn't on the news that it's not happening. Everywhere you look, this craziness is happening. You want to be, be ruled by that? Terrorism? 
Watching the news lately, you know, racism is on the rise. I don't think racism is getting worse. I just think we have, you know, 24-hour news cycles and social media now and smartphones to capture it on video. Police shootings almost every couple of weeks, riots in the streets, demonstrations, marches because people want equal rights. Listen, you want to be, you want to be blown around by that? You want that to determine the course of your life or the course of your mood or how you feel on any given day, the, the, the racism and the hatred that isn't going anywhere? Not to mention what's going on in your own personal life, your relationship status, the discontent. You know, some of you are sad because you're single. Others of you are sad because you're married. I'll let that marinate a little bit before I... No, you go, it's another holiday, and I, you know, I got to go to the Christmas parties alone again. I got to, you know, I got to, you know, I got to deal with this again. I thought that things would be different. Maybe stuff's not going on in your family, your extended family. You want to be blown around by those things. Maybe you have financial issues, maybe... You, 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 again, you've been laid off, you're reducing your hours. Your, your transmission, you know, blew up right before Christmas. And like, dang, there, there goes Christmas. Uh, there goes the stuff. And all the insecurity that comes along with that. In the absence of hope, you're ruled by the circumstances. You're ruled by what's happening today. You want to be, be ruled by that. The holiday drama. The fact that you have kids, the fact that maybe you can't have kids for some reason, the things that go bump in the night, you want to be ruled by that? Well, when you let go of hope, or when you choose not to engage it, you are ruled by the circumstances of life. You're ruled by the circumstances of your life. And so because of that reality, you want to do yourself a favor and anchor yourself to something that's real. You want to do yourself a favor and anchor yourself to something that's mighty, something that's unmovable, something that will be here tomorrow and that won't change with what's, you know, twin, trending on social media and trending on Twitter. You want to see a bunch of people just blown by every, you know, piece of the wind. Just, just look on your feed. Just, just, just read the newspaper. Just follow Twitter and follow Facebook or all these other things that I'm not cool enough to know about. Just look on that, and you'll see everybody just sort of blown with the circumstances. When things are good, everybody's good. Hey, our team won. But when something's down, everybody's, the world is ending tomorrow. And so if you want to get out of that, you know, turbulence and that, that hurricane of ups and downs, why don't you let hope be an anchor for your soul? Latch hold of the promise that God spoke, knowing that we're in a bad way, we're going through some things. Odds are we'll be there for a little while, and we need hope to be an anchor for our soul. We don't want to be ruled by the circumstances of life, because one of the beautiful things about hope is that hope gives us, hopes gives us vision. Hope gives us vision. Not natural vision, that's sight. But hope gives us a picture of what's to come. And as he spoke these promises to these people about these really meaningless, uh, you know, cities in Israel, that someone great would come from there. And a child would be born unto us. 
that he will be mighty. The government will rest on his shoulders and he'll be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. This is coming in the future. Now imagine as these people go through these ups and downs, as they're in captivity and as they're ruled by foreign armies, as people are killed. Imagine what comes bubbling up in those dark times. The hope that comes from the promise that comes from a credible source, God. Vision to see what can't be seen with our eyes. To look forward to something that is to come. I think it was Dr. Miles Monroe that said, sight is the enemy of vision. Sight, what I can see with my eyes, the circumstances of life, the things that dance before me, the things that seem realer to me in the moment than God's promises. Sight is the enemy of vision, what God said. Vision, what God said. Sight, what I can see, is always fighting against what God said. And so I reckon with the reality that if what I see with my sight, my circumstances do not match what I saw, what God showed me, then he must not be done yet. I'll say it again. If what I see, the circumstances of life, with my eyes, my vision, what's going on around me, is not what I saw, what God spoke, then I must conclude that God is still working. His promises have not failed. They have just been delayed for whatever reason. Because that hope, that promise is an anchor for my soul. Are you tossed about by the circumstances of your life? Some of you got news this week that just completely turned your life upside down. Some of you got a diagnosis or you, you got a bill in the mail or your kids got sick or something happened that just completely turned you around. And in this moment, you said, yes, I need to tether myself to something that's not going to move for a while. I'm, I'm a hopeless person in this moment. A few weeks ago, I was fine, but today I need, I need an anchor for my soul. I need to tie myself to the rock that shall not be moved. I need some hope this season. I need some hope in my life. Well, God's promises are true. God's promises are sure. And as we thumb through the pages of Scripture, we see many promises that God gave. But truth be told, God has given you some specific promises that are true to your life, that are true to your story. He spoke some of those promises through people that you trust, some of those promises you heard within your spirit as you prayed. Nonetheless, those were promises that God spoke to you. What are you doing with those promises? You hold tightly to them? Have you thrown them in the drawer somewhere? I'll tell you a quick story as I close. Worship team, you can come up. Uh, my father's uh, gone to be with the Lord probably about four or five years, lose track, four or five years ago. And my, you know, growing up, we, we would go to these meetings. We have these regular church services, but oftentimes there'd be some camp meetings, some extra conferences that we would go to. And my father was like this magnet for those who had come and had some like prophetic gifts because they would always stand him up out of the crowd and they would speak these uh, prophetic words to him. And my father had this thing he did where he would always buy the tape afterwards because you remember those tapes, those little things, tapes? And he would compile onto one tape. Every time he got a new prophecy from the Lord, every time the Lord spoke a word to him, he would compile it onto this one cassette. And whenever we were walking through the house and we hear the faint noises of this tape playing, I knew my father wasn't doing well. I knew that he was going through something. 
And what he was doing was he was reminding himself of the things that the Lord has spoken. Because some of those things had come to pass. As surely as the Lord spoke it, some of those things had come to pass, but many of those things had not yet come to pass. And when I heard this faint noise of him listening to these words that were spoken to him, I knew that he was encouraging himself. And what he was doing was he was just tightening the tether to that anchor, making sure it will hold, and dropping it down again on the promises that God had given him. My question to you is, what have you done with the promises that God has given you? Is, 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 has it given you hope? Have you realized that you are in a place of destitution where you have to be empty in order to receive this? But more importantly, have you allowed God's promises, both the general ones that he's spoken in Scripture and the specific ones that he's given you to anchor your soul? You won't make it if you don't. And so as we unpack more of this over the next few weeks, I want you to let that sit. I want you to ask yourself, especially as we worship, what have I done with God's promises? Am I a hope-filled person? Am I in need of a supernatural download of hope today? Where are you at today? You need your soul to be anchored in something that won't move. I think the Lord will pour that out. And as he pours that out, I think you will have a less complicated Christmas and a less complicated life. We'll continue this next week. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord, for uh, your promises. Thank you so much, Lord, for the hope that's attached to those promises, Lord. And uh, we just confess to you that that we're just, uh, we're not empty enough. And we feast on so many other things that just leave us just not hungry at all for what you have to give us. Lord, would you search us today and discover that thing that's keeping us from latching on to your promises? God, you also see us being tossed about by the circumstances of life, hopeless in every meaningful way. And Father, we just need you to be an anchor for our souls this morning. God, as we enter this holiday season, as we enter this next phase of our life, wherever we might be on the spectrum of life, Lord, I just pray that your hope would be stirred within us. That, Lord, you shine the floodlight of your truth on our lives so, Lord, it might illuminate any and everything that keeps us from being people of hope. And so, Lord, as we worship you today, Father, I pray that you would continue to minister to our hearts, continue to till the soil of our hearts so that your truth and your hope and your light would go deep and bring forth a great harvest. Lord, let us worship you today uninhibited. Lord, may we be reckless in our worship today because we know that you'll meet us here. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen.